At that hour, the disciples came to Yeshua, saying, Who then is greatest, greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself, set him in the midst of them, and said, Amen, I tell you, unless you turn and become like, this, like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then shall humble himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the, in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in, in my name welcomes me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who trust in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be sunk in the depths of the sea. Thank you, Tracy. So this passage that was read today, Matthew 18, um, I think that uh, when you hear Matthew 18, when you just hear that, Matthew 18, I think typically it's in the context of uh, our mind immediately goes to the end of Matthew, or not even the very end of Matthew 18, but a few verses later, around 15 through 20, they go over this process of how to restore an erring brother, someone who has sinned, sinned and sinned against you, I'll talk about that, uh, and so forth, and we think of this procedure, this process, how we deal with conflict, right? We think about, oh, you go to somebody, and then if they don't listen to you, you take somebody with you, and if they don't listen to you, then you bring it before the whole congregation, and if they don't listen, then you... You, you know, you, you treat them as, a, as an outsider and give them the cold shoulder and everything. And that's kind of what we think of, I think, when we think of Matthew 18. There are other um, sections of Matthew 18, maybe even in your Bible, you might see, if you look at Matthew 18 now, it's kind of broken up. You've got this section about humbleness like children, and then you've got the, the lost sheep, and then you've got uh, the section about restoring an erring brother or sister, and then you've got uh, a section about, um, you know, the atonement and salvation and so forth. We kind of think of Matthew 18 as this disjointed, you know, stuff. We've got the formula here to deal with this, and we've got the thing over here about God reaching out to lost sheep. Um, but quite frankly, I wanted to read, I'm going to kind of look more at the, the context of, uh, of not just verses 1 through 6, what Tracy read, but really verses 1 through 20 today, and hopefully give you, give you a little different perspective or maybe see a different picture here when really this is this is not so disjointed as we might have thought previously. In fact, um, that section that we kind of always think of as the climax of restoring somebody is really the context of that answer or that process really starts here in verse 1 with these disciples, the question of who is the greatest. And, and I'll talk a little bit about that. And so um, hopefully it'll be a little eye-opening for you because I think that... Um, is everyone familiar with the 15 through 20 about if, if, if someone sins, you go to them? And, and so I'm sure everyone is uh, familiar with that. Um, but uh, I think it's very um, crucial for us to look at this today because really Matthew 18, now when, I want, when I think you hear Matthew 18 in the future, I don't necessarily want you to think about congregational discipline at all, but really about a pattern uh, of God's process for reconciliation uh, and forgiveness in the corporate community of God's people. The fact that Matthew 18 really has a redemptive purpose and not a, a punitive purpose necessarily, and that it centers on humility, as we've seen at the beginning of this, of this chapter, when we go back and we look at the beginning of chapter 18 and how this, all, how this all begins. And specifically, I think, in the context of today, specifically it's important to look at this because of where we are on the biblical calendar. Um, and you might say, uh, what, what, what biblical calendar? Where are we on the biblical You're smiling, Mike. I'm not looking at you in particular. But, uh, you know, um, where are we on the biblical calendar? What do you mean we should look at this today because we're on the biblical calendar? And if you've been with us for a few weeks, and a lot of you do know that we're in a period right now uh, between 
uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And uh, you've heard in past weeks we had some readings for a thing called Selichot, um, penitential prayers and so forth. It's a time of introspection. And uh, I'll say on the biblical calendar, uh, it's a time of introspection and traditionally a time when we, we uh, and certainly the Jewish community is thinking, you know, I've got to get things uh, straight with one another with my brother and my sister, with the people in the community. I need to work out any interpersonal issues during this time period before Yom Kippur comes and then that, that book of life is closed. Now, we don't necessarily adhere to that thought completely, but that's the idea, and the idea of introspection and considering um, issues within the community and relationships is also very important. So I think it's very important for us to look at that. Michael mentioned uh, a thing called Shabbat Shuvah, uh, which he said is the, the Sabbath of return. That's what today is. It's the Sabbath prior to Yom Kippur, Shabbat Shuvah. Uh, and then it's a, in that time period of introspection, which is also called uh, the days of awe. Not awe, but awe. You know, the Yamim uh, Noraim is what it is in Hebrew, the days of awe, the, the, the 10 days between uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, that time of, of reconciliation with one another, preparing them for reconciliation with God. So, Let's go back. Let's go back to the, to the beginning, to the start of chapter 18, and work through uh, some of this section together. And again, look at it as one contiguous, continuous section as opposed to this is the part about kids, this is the part about the lost sheep, and this is the part about how to reconcile when someone sinned against you. Because it's all born out of this beginning here in, uh, in beginning in verses of chapter 18 with the question in verse 1, who then is the greatest... In the, king, in the kingdom of heaven. That's how this thing starts off. And Yeshua's answer to that is, well, he gives a good answer. He doesn't really give the answer, and you'll see he gives a different answer initially. Calls the child to himself and says, unless you change, some of your translations might say, unless you convert and so forth, but that's not what it is. It's talking about a, a turning, a teshuvah. Um, unless you change and you become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So again, they ask the question, how, what do I do uh, um, to become the greatest? And, and he, ans he answers about entering the kingdom, right? They didn't ask, how do I enter the kingdom? They're asking, they're assuming we're in, we just want to be great in the kingdom. And he said, well, let me tell you something. Unless you do this, uh, you're not even going to enter the kingdom. And, uh, you know, so often I think we also do the same thing. We're seeking the wrong things. You know, we're seeking answers to problems that maybe we shouldn't be pursuing that problem to begin with. Um, you know, I don't know if you've, ever, if you've ever found yourself kind of banging your head against the wall trying to solve some problem or to, or to figure something out or to get something to happen when really that wasn't the problem or the thing you should have been working on to begin with. So I think that's very uh, illustrative to us here at the very beginning that they ask one thing and he answers another. And yes, he does answer the question eventually, but his first order of business, his, Yeshua's first order of business is to refocus them. Um, again, they're talking about rank, they're talking about greatness, and he's talking about just getting in, almost equating the two, quite frankly. And just as with the disciples, I think, uh, maybe we also need to stop every once in a while and ask the Lord to focus us first before running off uh, in some direction or in multiple directions, seeking to accomplish our plans and our purposes, and how do I, how do, I do this? How, Lord, please help me. Give me wisdom how to do this. How do I become the greatest in the kingdom? And then we're off doing that when really that wasn't the right question, the right focus. We kind of had the cart before the horse there. Um, 
You know, greatness and success, I think, is really just fine, quite frankly, but with the right attitude. And what's the attitude that Yeshua is driving at here? He says it's a childlike attitude. And I think we need to stop and really think about this for a moment, what it means to become like a child. And as we go on, we'll see that this, this section, he, he switches from children to little ones, and, and I could give you the background for it, but really the picture broadens from just children to little ones, meaning the disciples of Yeshua, not necessarily weak disciples, but just disciples of Yeshua when he, when he continues on with this teaching. But what is it about children that we should consider um, about, their, about their attitude, about what he's saying here? I think it's important because he says that unless you have that attitude, guess what? You're not even getting into the kingdom. In fact, the Greek there is this one construction I learned. Um, it's a double negative, and I learned it in, in Greek class as the equivalent of saying, no way, Jose. That's how, that's how Ellie talks. She said, no way, Jose, are you getting in to the kingdom. It's a double negative there. No way, Jose. So I think we should consider that because that's pretty significant. If no way, Jose, uh, there's no Jose's here. I think we had a Jorge, but no Jose's. Okay, so we're good. Um, so anyways, uh, we need to consider that because there is really so much to learn and gain from watching children. Okay? Um, I got a lot to learn, so I had a bunch of children. I'm sure, Brian, you know the same thing. Maybe you like, maybe you need to have some more children because you got more to learn. You need to watch them, you know, after that two-year-old gets to be about five, you know, you can have another one. Uh, you look like a young man, so you're good to go. Uh, but, uh, you know, what can we learn about children? Generally speaking, I think children do exemplify a great deal of trust, a great deal of lack of pride. Uh, they're very forgiving. Um, I mean, I think of times when, you know, I'm trying to accomplish something at home, and it seems like they're thwarting every effort, and maybe I lose my temper, and, and something, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm not too kind with them. The next minute, they're jumping on me, and oh, good night, Daddy, and this kind of stuff, and they're very forgiving in general. They're very forgiving, and they have, a, again, they have a, a lack of concern for status. Um, their kids are pretty uncomplicated. Again, they don't, they don't hold that grudge, and I don't think, you know, the next day, if someone's upset with me, one of the kids, it's not because of something I did last week. I mean, they're not like that. They're not complicated. That takes us time. We develop that over time. We get better at that as we get older. We, hold, we can hold grudges and figure out how to remember what you did 17 months ago uh, to, to me and, uh, and so forth. That's, an, that's an, a later learned thing. But you look at kids. I mean, you can have a super wealthy, materially privileged child put on the street with a, with a homeless child or one of these kids I see on, on the streets in India probably, I guarantee my little, you know, three, four, five-year-old would, would play with them no, with no qualms. There'd be no question. They would just be down there playing, playing with them, with a, with a homeless person's child on the street. So children have definitely have an absence of superiority, an absence of, of judgmentalism. That's part of the picture. Again, is that every single child, are you going to tell me about conniving kids afterwards? Believe me, I've got, I've got a few kids. I understand these things and as, we, as we get up. But in general, that's the picture here, uh, the, the absence of, of any kind of judgmental, uh, judgmentalness and so forth. Another piece of this about children, becoming like children, children, uh, and certainly in that culture, and, and in our culture, maybe not stated the same way, they're not people of high status themselves. We're not looking up to and going to lectures by children and so forth. Um, they are, quite frankly, they are, the federal government calls them what? Dependents, right? They are dependents. Um, and, and so there's, a, there's an idea of, um, of that. There's, a, there's also the idea that they are really usually the weakest members of society, the weakest members of a family. You look at the most vulnerable. I mean, in fact, I'm sure your youngest, my youngest, usually the youngest, the baby, the weakest one, is really the most protected, the most cared for, the most valued one, the one that gets, gets everything, quite frankly. Um, 
And the adult idea of greatness, though, includes the idea of our own protection, our our own self-preservation, our own provision. And society's answer to that is to be powerful and self-sufficient. But Yeshua here is saying the opposite. He's saying that greatness is about God's sufficiency. It's about God's provision. And moreover, it's not only about being like a child in, again, in those characteristics, but being like a child with regard to that child's status in society, a dependent, a responsibility, not someone necessarily to be looked up to. Great. I don't know about you, but I, you know, just when I thought that I could be cool, we can have cool music with electric guitars, right, and, and drums, and we can, we can be relevant, you know, we can watch movies, we can go out and have a beer with someone, maybe, maybe you believe that, maybe you don't, I don't know. We can kind of be, be relatable. Um, now I find out that I got to kind of do everything opposite of what, what the world says, right? Um, I'm not necessarily putting all of those things down, the electric guitars and so forth. Don't, don't, don't hear me wrong there. But the point that we must ultimately understand is that the reality is, is that the kingdom of heaven is antithetical. It's the opposite of, of all that stuff. The sooner you realize that, the better. Um, I'm not advocating to be unrelatable or unnecessarily weird. Please don't be. Um, but understand that typically... Things that work in the world are really the opposite of the way they work in the kingdom. And that's what Yeshua is uh, saying here. Case in point, as he says, you know, the, the way to, to, for greatness in the world. Again, this, remember, the question started off here. I want to keep the context as we look, go through this passage. The context of it is, you know, who's the, who's the greatest? Or how do we become the greatest? In the, wor- in the world, it's strategy. It's marketing plans. It's, you know, okay, you've grown up now. You're with the big boys now. It's time to grow up and put your big boy pants on. You've heard that kind of stuff. And Yeshua is saying, look. Uh, those who would seek to be great in the kingdom have to have a change in attitude. They've got to become like children. In fact, without that, you're not even going to enter the kingdom um, unless you've got that kind of spirit like the young one. And so the greatest in the kingdom, then, he says, is the one that makes themselves as humble as a child. And again, that word there is, is, is to, to become like is, is the idea of teshuvah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a change. It's, it's, a, it's a radical change, radical change there. So the question I have for you is, is, is our confidence, is your confidence in your kingdom standing, um, is it like that of a child, trusting the goodness of the Father, or is the confidence in yourself, you've said the right prayer, you've done the right thing, you do the right stuff? You know, as a child lives with that very simple trust in their parents, very simple trust, that's what gets kids in trouble sometimes in, in, a, in an unfortunate way, but it's a very simple trust of adults and so forth. Similarly, a disciple of Yeshua must have a simple and abiding faith in the Heavenly Father. Let's read on here in verses 6 through 7. We think we stopped, uh, maybe Tracy read a few of those. Talks about th- this next section talks about stumbling blocks. It says, you know, um, if any one of you puts a stumbling block in front of one of these little ones, and again, we're kind of switching from little ones being children to those who are faithfully following their father, their parent, uh, Yeshua, the Lord. Um, it'd be better for you that if you had this millstone hung around your neck and just... Uh, so you know this is a big grinding stone this thing probably i mean a minimum thousand pounds probably a a ton or more a massive stone tied around your neck that you're going to follow very closely uh, to the bottom of the ocean that would seem merciful compared with you causing the stumbling of uh of someone and again originally a stumbling block was a thing that holds up a trap so you get this image of something that holds up an animal trap um but in a, in, a, in, a, in a symbolic way or in the um, metaphorical way in, in, the, in the, the Bible here, and certainly in Matthew, it's this idea of a, of a bait or a lure, something that's designed to destroy a person or cause them to sin. 
And you might be thinking, well, you know, I don't see myself as someone who's setting up traps for people every day um, or intentionally causing them to sin. But remember, Yeshua is speaking here to believers. When you read the context, he's speaking to believers. So we should pay attention uh, to what it's, what's talking about here and give a lot, he gives a lot of airtime to this stumbling block, this potential trip-up kind of thing. Six times he mentions it in two verses. And then in, in even in a bigger context, he explores that concept a little, a little greater. And so I want to suggest to you that you might have a little more power than you think when it comes to stumbling and, and causing the stumbling of others. Um, as much as uh, I think we'd like to just sit and live our little quiet life and, and you know, keep our nose clean, if you will, and not bother anybody and not let anyone bother us, the fact is, and I think this text is telling us, is that unless you're invisible, you're going to encounter opportunities to stumble. You're going to encounter opportunities to cause others to stumble. And you should pay attention to that because Yeshua is making it clear again that there are very big penalties. Again, penalties that would make that rock that's, you know, a thousand plus pounds tied to your neck uh, seem like a pretty merciful way to go. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's read a little further here in verse 8. Some, again, this is some stuff you're familiar with. And again, as we're reading this, you're going to say, oh, I, remember th- I know these passages. Remember the context. Well, he's still answering the question. All the way through the end of, of, of chapter 18, actually, at the beginning of 19, you can see there's a transition. It says, when Yeshua had finished saying these things. In other words, he has a continual teaching here in, in chapter 18, all from this initial question of, how do I become the greatest? So verses 8 through 11, it says, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. I'll kind of skip around. You've probably heard this before. It's better to go into, into heaven with two, w- with two hands and two feet and with eyes. You know, gouge out your eyes if they're causing you, causing you to stumble. Get, cut off your feet. It's better to go into heaven absent all these things than uh, to, go to, to be thrown into hell with them. So that's what he says here in verses 8 through 11. So he's saying, again, he's spending a lot of time here talking about these snares, to be on the lookout, that they're hidden. They're like an animal trap. They're camouflaged. They're enticing. And again, I think we often think about some of the more obvious things. We might think about uh, the things we watch on television or movies, or I stay away from this, I stay away from that, I stay away from those people, or maybe I need to get another job because I don't like the way they're doing business over here. It's unethical, and I don't want to participate in that kind of thing. And we think about all these things out there that might be causing us to stumble. And these passages here, I think, are telling us um, it might be a little closer than you think. It might not be all that stuff out there. It could actually be a thing at the end of your arm. Maybe the things at the end of your feet, you know. Um, It probably goes without saying, but, you know, everything originates, not so much the hands that are causing us. Things originate in our mind. We take things in through our ears. We take things in through our our eyes. And the arms and the feet and so forth are just the agents of those things. We see something we want. We we see something we want to do. We hear about something we want to do. Our feet propel us there, and our hands, you know, do do the work and so forth. Um, And it probably goes without saying that the lesson here is not about cutting off your limbs, um, but, again, to do things in a radical manner, this idea of teshuvah, to do things in a radical manner, if necessary, in order to walk righteously with God. And again, what could that be? I don't know everything. This is for you to to determine between you and the Lord. I mean, it could be things like I mentioned. It could be uh, media intake. It could be uh, radio listening. It could be the amount of time you spend with your, your friends and relatives. I don't know. I know personally, I was thinking about this this week, um, in the last several years, I spent a lot of time when I'm driving, just getting on the phone and, and calling my dad, for example, and not to, not to put my dad down necessarily, I don't mean to do that, but I realized there's probably some more um, spiritually productive things I can do with my time, like listen to uh, 
recorded sermons or listen to the recorded Word of God, things like that. So those are just some things that, that I think are pra practically speaking that, that uh, I can do other than cutting off limbs and gouging out my eyes and cutting off my ears and so forth. So again, when it comes to being on the lookout for stumbling blocks or the cause of stumbling, don't always be looking out there because the problem could be a lot closer, a lot closer than you think. So let's look at verses 12 through 14. It says, what do you think? Again, this is after. What's it take to be the greatest? You need to be humble. You need to be like a child. You need to watch out for stumbling blocks. Don't you realize? What do you think? If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, I truly, truly, I tell you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of your Father in heaven that any one of those little ones, and he's talking little ones here, uh, not necessarily the children anymore, that one of them should be, should be lost. So, again, I used to view these as separate chunks of, of unit, but again, they're all interrelated. Uh, this is, these verses about God's concern for his straying sheep are not just necessarily a, a theological doctrine about God's care for his creation. Yes, it is, and there are other places in the Gospels, and uh, Luke as well, that, 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 that it seems like that is what he's saying. This is a general principle. This is all in the context of entering the kingdom, not being a stumbling for one, for one another. Um, and it, this is more of a pastoral section in the context of stumbling, not co causing others to sin, this idea of the lost sheep. In other words, the sheep that strays, you know, God created it, right? We tend to think that's us always. We tend to always think this is something I can grab on for myself that, you know, if I stray, if, someone, if I'm gone, God's never going to leave me, going to never forsake me. That's true. But again, the context is unity and reconciliation. In other words, God does care for all of us. Therefore, that's the incentive for each one of you to also consider that straying sheep. Also consider the relationship you have. Also consider the stumbling that may have caused them to, to disappear. That's the incentive because God does care for them. The one that you might have caused to stumble or walk away, or maybe the one that you know the, it was caused by someone else. The point is, the sheep is out there, because the uh, the rescue and the restoration of that sheep is very pivotal for the success of the kingdom. This is talking about entering the kingdom. Don't forget. Um, and it's also interesting. This also right here is the context for the the, the immediate context. Again, the big context is who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The immediate context to the know, uh, going to the person, talking to them, and having two people come, and then giving it to the congregation, and then wherever two or more are gathered in my name, we'll get to that in a minute, uh, I'm there in your midst. The immediate context is this, this wandering, sh wandering sheep, right, that it was backed up by the stumbling, which is backed up by entering the kingdom. Um, but this is serious business, because, you know, without entrance and advancement into the kingdom, we have stagnation and death. And we assume also in this passage about the sheep here that the sheep's always going to be found, right? But if you notice, it does say, if. It says, if he finds it. If he finds it. What might happen to a wandering sheep in reality? I'm not a farmer, necessarily. But someone's making, like, look like Diane's eating corn on the cob over there. She, I think she'd catch that sheep and eat it, is what she's saying. Uh, yeah, the sheep can get lost. The sheep can fall into a pit. The sheep can get eaten by a wolf. Um, that's what, that's what can happen. Um, so the finding, the finding of that sheep or, or God going after the sheep does not minimize the other ones that, that, are, that are there, that are already found, but it simply adds emphasis to just how special and important restoration is. And this is about restoration. This is about 
removing causes of stumbling. This is about entering the kingdom. So that, that really adds the emphasis of how special and important restoration is. So now I want to get to, to verses 15 and 20. And uh, again, I've, I've kind of gone over it before. I don't think I need to read, read the verse about, you know, if, if someone sins. Uh, and again, it's not necessarily that someone sins against you. It really isn't. The against you is not, um, not in all manuscripts. They, they don't all have that part against you. So it could just be that someone is erring. That you do see someone that has gone off in a, in a direction, um, not necessarily something that's led to a, a breakdown in your personal relationship and so forth. But what is clear, what is very clear is how this starts off, is how you are to go to the person initially. And it's in private. It's very clear about that. Again, what my point is whether it's someone who's sinned against you, whether it's someone you feel has got something going on, you feel compelled to, to go and, and restore them and so forth, you are to go, with, to go to them in private. Not during Oneg, not during hospitality time, not after having 10 sessions with other members of the congregation that you've griped, uh, prayed with about, uh, and so forth. Um, not after you've unloaded your issues to Rabbi Chaim or me or Joy or someone else and, you know, because we're the leaders and you had to really felt we needed to know first before you went. You're supposed to go. It's very clear what's supposed to happen uh, uh, first um, before you're trying to get everyone else to fix them. But some of you are familiar probably with the Torah portion that begins in Genesis 12. Uh, that Torah portion is called Lech Lecha, and it's a very strong Hebrew command. This is the portion where God says, Abraham, Abram, go, go to your people, leave everything you've known and go, right? This is, it's called Lech Lecha. It's a very strong way in Hebrew of saying go. So it basically says, go you, you go. Uh, leave this place, do all that kind of stuff. And that's often pointed to, that's a pretty tall order that Abraham did there, and that's often pointed to as this amazing step of faith. Some people say, what was Abraham's greatest moment of faith? Oh, it's when he raised the knife to kill Isaac. It was actually, I think, when he, it says, Vayelech Avram, when, when, and then Abraham went. That is the big, the big thing of faith. It would, it's a go command. Um, and I believe, though, that this verse in Matthew 18, verse 15 of Matthew, is arguably the second most difficult, if not equally difficult, I think, um, go command that I can think of in the Bible. The Bible says to go. God, God told Abram to go. But this command, I think, might even be more uh, of, a, of a hard command to follow. So anybody that's anti-Torah, anti-Hebrew Bible, Tanakh, that's Old Testament, the poo-poo, all that old stuff, I want to live in the loving New Testament scriptures, um, I suggest that you rethink that uh, position. Uh, personally, I'd much, rather, man, I'd much rather separate all my meat and cheese, make sure my clothes are of one thread, not so two kinds of thread. I'll have one wife, that's an easy thing. Uh, but, uh, you know, anything like that, any of these other, you know, difficult difficult commands, um, man, I'll take those all day long uh, before tackling conflict issues and submitting to this particular go command, which is right at the beginning of the, 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 the loving New Testament scriptures. <laughs> um, a hard go command. But again, the stakes are very high. Remember, this is not a separate, this is not a separate, let's just talk about how to deal with, with, with congregational discipline. This is in the context of entering the kingdom. This is in the context of not being a stumbling block. Remember the millstone, right? This is, the, this is in the context of restoring and finding lost sheep. So there's big, the big stakes. One of the major goals that this, that this process, that take place in this process, is not necessarily, we think again, Matthew 18, we're going to go and we're going to air our grievances. That's not one of the major goals. We're not going to go and get personal validation. Okay? One of the major goals in this process, again, in context, is for each person to 
possibly also discover their, their culpability, what their part of the problem is. Because no one is ever 100% responsible, usually, uh, for, for, for an issue. Most of the time, um, it's not that way. And again, this is a flip-flop of the world's way because it talks about going, you know, going to another brother or sister. You know, normally, um, in the world system of, of dealing with an issue, for example, at work, there's, a, there's an understood um, hierarchy. There's a, there's a boss, there's an underling, and you know, you, you got to go to the boss, you know, that kind of thing. This is more of an equal thing. It's very difficult. It's a fellow member of the body. It, it's a, it uses the word brother there. It's an equal. And most likely, if you follow the, the context and the guidance given, given here, with, with the understanding of the full context of this chapter, um, you'll find out that typically the issue, the sin, it is usually a misunderstanding of some kind. Now, that does not mean you're going to emerge from this process completely understanding each other. At best, you might actually just understand how that you guys have different perspectives on the same thing. And that might be where you stay for a long time. A long time. But that's actually a, a, a success. could be a short time. It must could be a long time. But again, that's, that's okay. Every step of this process, every step of this process, again, in context, is taken with the hope that the end result would be reconcili- reconciliation and restoration, not retribution. So when we look at verse, the last several verses here, or actually verse 20, 20 is a very popular one. It says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Um, and hopefully you've seen now, based on the context, and if you haven't, if you read this again through, if you've got the sections divided in your Bible, kind of ignore that and read it through straight. Hopefully you'll see that uh, having God in your midst when two or three are gathered has to do with the, the two that are in conflict at first, right? Just two, right? Remember, don't talk to everyone else for the two. Uh, and then the additional witnesses afterwards. This is not some magic formula that I think we often use um, to get what we want or a magic formula to bring God down from the heavens. He was, off, he was having lunch with his buddies, and then, well, now we're two are gathered, so now he's here in our midst kind of thing. That's not it at all. Not like you're rubbing a, a genie's lamp or something to make God pop out and be there in your midst. What this is, is also, it is very important, though, because what this, this, this is here in verse 20, the idea of God being in our midst where two or three are gathered, there are two or three are gathered in the context of reconciliation, the context of restoring the lost sheep, in the context of not causing one to stumble, in the context of entrance into the kingdom. Again, I'm not calling into question your salvation, but there's a big, there's a big uh, uh, this is the big hyperbolic picture here. Um, this is assurance that when you take the steps of faith to enter into one of the most difficult go commands in the Bible, that God will be there to get the job done. And I hope that this is a huge revelation, one that each of uh, us needs to grab a hold of in terms of the conflict that we experience and that we deal with, um, the idea that God is there to get this job done, because quite often it is not, again, this is consciously or uh, subconsciously one of the most opposed things that ever goes on in any kind of congregational setting. Sure, we have meetings, but they're not really coming. They, a lot of things have happened before the meeting and not in the right process and not in the right attitude and not in the right spirit. But hopefully you've gained a new and, and perhaps um, renewed perspective on, on the idea that when we, when, we, when we partake in this process, that God really is the one. He's there in our midst because he's got to make this go command happen because it's, it's impossible without it. So hopefully you've gained a, a slightly new, possibly a renewed or perhaps a fresh perspective on Matthew 18 today. 
because again, that term gets thrown, thrown around quite a bit. But we, we started off by, by being reoriented. And this is the way we say we. Yeshua starts off, I think, by reorienting uh, his disciples and by, by, uh, by the same token, us, to the world's idea of success and greatness. And seeing that the key to greatness in God's economy begins with humility. And it's not just something we can just do. It's not a simple, like a contrived, I'm going to be humble now, by the way. <laughs> just so you know. It's one of my best qualities, um, I'd have to say. But uh, this is not something we can just contrive, but it's, a, uh, it's an internal humility that recognizes that reliance on God for everything from our, from our entrance to the kingdom, just to our functioning here on earth. Okay, realizing that a necessary characteristic of being a disciple uh, in the kingdom is to trust in the king. And again, all the way down to this last step of trusting that he can work, work through these, this go command. Because it is God's desire that all of his children would be in harmony. And that it's only by his power that this can happen. So let's pray. Lord, as we're in this time of introspection, this time between, between the, the holy days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, Lord, preparing ourselves for that time of Yom Kippur, a time where we can then consider fully the atonement that you made on our behalf, the atonement that provides uh, for our eternal lives with you. I pray that in this time now, Lord, before that, that we would also realize the necessity of reconciling ourselves to one another. Help us, Lord, to turn our perspectives on life around realizing that belonging to your kingdom requires a humble attitude, not a contrived humility, but an understanding that our confidence comes from you and not from our achievements and not from our power. Help us, Lord, to seek a right standing, not just with you, but with our fellow brothers and sisters. May we see the, the, the gravity, the amazing gravity in that, Lord, the importance that you place on that. And may we have the confidence to know that as we seek your complete healing and your shalom in these areas, Lord, that you are there in our midst to support and to empower us in that. These things we ask in Yeshua's name. Amen.